Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Rob? Today, Russell... I am Mm. feeling multifaceted. Oh, good. Because our guest today is a bona fide legend. And to me is actually one of the most significant artists who I discovered while I was studying. And a teacher of mine, John Slice, the writer, he showed us a video of a work called The Painter. And I think showed it to us to kind of say, A, this was like his favourite artwork. And B, that it somehow summed up all of society and culture in that very moment or something. Absolutely. Um, and yes. it was a really eye-opening experience. We actually sat down as a group and watched, watched the film from start to finish. And it was pretty much the one moment that had a big impact on me because I started to think about art in a new way and look mm. at the possibilities of art. And we'll talk more about that as the show goes on today. But the artist we're meeting works with performance and film and has fabricated sets and... uh, Robots, animatronics. Yes. And uh, rubber and photography and sculpture and drawing and painting. And loves ketchup. Oh my God, this artist is obsessed with ketchup. As do we. And um, and also (laughs) even bodily fluids. I mean, it's a very uh, expansive realm but so we (laughs) i'm just super excited so we would like to welcome to talk art paul Paul mccarthy McCarthy. hi paul how are you paul Uh, i'm fine (laughs) where do we find where do we find you in the world Uh, right now where am i yeah yeah i'm in the house well it's a it's a studio you know it's uh it's like a big box. We live in a big box. <laughs> and you're in Los Angeles? Yeah, up in the hills. Yeah. And we, we've been, we have a, you know, the, the real, the other studio is downtown LA. But uh, since COVID, we've been up here pretty much all the time you know, mm. in this house. Uh, so your, vo- your voice, though, right now, Rob was talking about the painter, which to me is one of the most incredible uh, performance arts movies films art films ever but your character you play in that your voice i can hear completely i know it's obviously you playing the part but there's this this voice i feel like i'm watching this this artist have an existential crisis i'm hearing that voice it's an incredible work it's an incredible work so so let let, i want to go back because when i when i was doing research on you um 
I found that the most exciting moment for me in discovering your process is the fact that when you first came to LA, you started working in set design. You worked on movie sets or TV sets, and that inspired you and your practice and what the, what your art could be, the scope of it. Well, it, it, little it's uh, when I came to LA, you know, I. I I entered, I went to USC uh, graduate school and I was in what they referred to as multimedia at the time. It was, you know, it's the, the beginning of the 70s and uh, this whole, you know, expanding uh, education in a sense where they were allowing students to be between departments and uh, an experiment which, you know, now barely exists. And so I was, you know, in a way could uh, exist between the art department and the film school. But the film school was a real conservative place and uh, famous but conservative. And uh, I didn't do well in the film school. Um, and so my when I get to L.A., I'm not involved in... Uh, the movie industry at that time is actually a period of, I, I graduate from school, I end up uh, making videotapes in a psychiatric hospital and uh, kind of work as... What a, do you mean? What, with, with patients? Or yeah. With... Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, it, that eventually I ended up working for a special effects house and that uh, as a, uh, in a lab and as a photographer, I was trying to go for a camera uh-huh. card and um, I, the special effects house had a crash. It was fired. We were working on Star Trek and uh, huh. they spent too much money. So it ended and I ended up working at Paramount Studios. And when I got to Paramount yeah. Studios, uh, that's when I really was <clears throat> I ended up taking photographs and being inside large sound stages mm-hmm. uh, on Paramount's uh, lot and uh, that's mm-hmm. when I sort of uh, you know the experience of sets and what that kind of was about was how you would enter these big black these big voids these huge buildings, giant structures. And inside they would have these sets where they were shooting a film and they, like you would go, there would be a house with a front door and you would go on the front door, you'd be in the living room. But if you went through the other door, you just went outside of the set of which there could be another structure. And I, you know, I I was interested in, You know, I think I entered, uh, I came to Los Angeles with this sort of, you know, in the 70s, there was this view of, of, you know, experimental films and underground films and uh, the rise of, uh, in America, and the interest in America of uh, the European filmmakers and, uh, you know, Easy Rider and uh, this whole that there was the potential for a, some sort of change in 
what filmmaking was. And of course, it was, you know, it never happened. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, there was just a, you know, I kind of, I had this uh, thought that I could, uh, you know, enter Hollywood and make films in Hollywood, but uh, it, 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 it wasn't true. And I was interested in something other than what Hollywood was interested in. And, but the experience of seeing those sets and uh, I think affected the direction I kind of went, this idea of attempting to make uh, uh, or appropriate a, the idea of a soundstage as a studio. You know. mm. I think you described them as traps at one point. I've heard you describe them, the sets. Yeah. You felt like you were trapped in these... Well, the, metaphorically, you know, in that we're sort of we're trapped on the planet, right? It's like there's no yes. getting off. And, uh, <laughs> and um, it, it, in a way, the sets, normally a set, is set up like in a U shape, right? The the set has like three walls, you know, television sets for the most part, and yeah. and the camera looks into that. And uh, I was taking existing sets and turning them into rooms. Uh, the painter is set up like a television set. You you have a series of rooms, but it goes along uh, a sort of the length and the camera looks in like a television studio. But mm -hmm. the other sets I've made are enclosures. And as enclosures, uh, the, the action all takes place in a four wall situation, which may have multiple rooms. Uh, and, you know, it, like the ones I just did, the pieces I just did, this Nightbotter and uh, the other one is called D-A-D-D-A. Uh, -D -D -A. Those sets are, the Nightbotter set is like, I don't know, there's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, yeah, 11, 12 rooms. And they're all cool. connected. So it, it's referred to as the maze. The maze, and, wow. And the piece was, what the piece was, was it was, uh, we made a film of a, of a type of remaking of uh, a film called The Night Porter, a 1974 film, but we completely altered it. But this set is made up of a, a remake of the Marriott Hotel, a room from the Marriott Hotel and the hallway and a series of rooms from the film itself, which are the rooms that uh, one of the, the characters, his apartment, this character Max in the Night Porter. And the, the situation is, is we made his apartment, his room, his bedroom, living room, his kitchen and his bathroom. But then we repeated it so there's more than one bathroom. So it's to duplicate his bathroom exactly the same two times, duplicate his kitchen two times, build another room which is reminiscent of the Beverly Hills Hotel. And all of this is connected into a structure that's like 100 feet by 40 feet. And it 
does, you're kind of, in the very center of the structure is where all the tech for making the film existed, meaning Um, all the video, all of that was being captured within the center, which is like a brain. And um, Is this all in your studio at the moment? Yeah, it's in the studio. And and you're going to be in this? No, we already shot it. Oh, okay. It's already happened. That piece uh, we shot uh, in 2019, I guess. And uh, that, from that, it's kind of interesting, you know, like I found over the years, I usually make things in pairs. Um, These um, performance videos are kind of done in pairs where you make one and then another one comes out of it. And... um, so when I made Piccadilly, Bunker Basement happened. When I made uh, Rebel Without a Cause, White Snow happened. When I made CSSSC, DAD happened. Like it's kind of, it's a an odd, uh, like phenomena within the work I've done is that these videos seem to come up in pairs like it takes two time to get through the subject first time you get so this one night botter it's called it's taken from night porter but we changed the title to night botter uh, night father and it's it was done you know with a, a crew a quite a large crew of probably 30 40 people in a cast at certain times of, I don't know, 20 people. But for the majority of the film, it's in Night Porter, the 1974 film, the film was really divided in half where you have a situation going on about a Nazi concentration camp and an involvement of a, of a, a sort of... A, officer a nazi officer with a young uh jewish girl in a concentration a masochistic thing and then they meet uh, later in the what you're not i'm not really sure uh, probably late 40s early 50s and the relationship starts up again in the piece we made uh it's it's also divided in half so the first half is really about a producer in Hollywood uh, who's auditioning a young girl who's coming from Germany uh, to audition for a film. And the producer really is, he's not interested really in making films. He's interested in the access he gets to uh, these women or these young men or just the access he gets and the power involved to manipulate. And he, so he, the first part of it is all about a party in Beverly Hills. Girl comes to the party. She's supposed to meet the producer. And then later the piece becomes about them in the Marriott hotel later going to Max's apartment and Max's apartment comes from the original film. So it's a kind of convoluting of, you know, a remake of a film, but yet 
And then coincidentally, of course, you had the Weinstein comes up, right? Mm. And this character in Nightbotter is obsessed with fascism. And which is really a dominant, it's a subject in society today in a big way with what was what has happened in, in America. And so, you know, like somehow, you know, like how did I end up making a piece about, you know, a producer in California and Weinstein happens? How did I end up? making a piece mm-hmm. about fascism and Trump happens. And, mm-hmm. you know, from that, um, we went on to the second piece, like this pair thing, and it became about taking the piece into this, directly into the subject of fascism. And it, it becomes more about Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's referred to as A&E, which is also Adam and Eve, um, or arts and entertainment. And these subjects, when, when we made this, and I did almost all of the, the stuff with uh, an actress from Germany, uh, Lilla Stangenberg, and she plays the Lucia character and the Ava character in A&E. We also made a series of drawings and in character as either Max and Lucia or as Adam and Eve or Adolf and uh, Ava. And so the show at Hauser and Wirth is drawings made in a sort of persona or character. And um, that... I've done in the past. I did it when I did White Snow, and I was Walt Disney, and and with Elise Poppers, and she plays White Snow. We made drawings then together. So, and they're referred to as the drawing sessions, and um, so the show there is not of the performance piece of Nightbotter or A and E. It's of uh, the drawings made. So. So listening to your descriptions, I mean, if for people that don't or first come into your work or haven't really uh, come come across it that much, America, Americana, the kind of fucked up pleasantry, which is a quote that you've said before of the kind of American dream subverting that feels like it's such a huge driving force through all of your practice. Obviously, Hollywood movies have have fed in at every stage, but the kind of excavation of the dark underbelly of America feels like that is the driving force of your practice. Yeah, because it's the one that's closest to me, right? I I think in another way, it's really the driving force has to do, especially now, it seems that's even more so is the the driving force of existence itself and yeah. uh, the c- human construction and uh, the human construction as in part an absurdity. Mm-hmm. Do you know, I mean, I, it's, do we under, do we understand, do we understand we're alive? Yeah. Well, it's quite existential in some ways. Like, that's what yeah. I feel about your work is that it's 
existential. There's always a crisis. <laughs> but I feel like you as a person, Paul, maybe this is me projecting on you, feel kind of grounded and sorted in yourself and know your place in the world. But these these alter egos, these characters and these storylines that you put out there kind of test an existentialism of what it is to be alive, what it is to be human and using the American Americana as uh, a material for that. Yeah, well, I think the, the subject of America, like I said, it's the one that's closest to me. You know, yeah. it's and, it, and and so much in America is about media. Yes. You know, you, you know, it's not that violence isn't really present in America. It is, but it's it's a it isn't. It's it's like you you experience a lot of that violence, whether it's actual or in some theater of violence, media mm. theater of violence. You experience it through that box, that that square image, right? It's like a window. Uh, yeah. I mean, TVs are windows essentially, you know, and and so it's you're experiencing. That's how I experience a, a lot of what I know, you know. And then I think that's true of America. I mean, then you have, of course, your daily life and all this stuff, you know. But yeah. It's, um, it's quite interesting, that, that idea of the window, because that's actually what your work changed in my perception of art because I'd always seen art as a window somehow like you know if you hang a picture in a traditional sense on a wall people often use that term like oh it's like a window to another world I mean I've used that term before mm -hmm. but I think when I saw your work for the first time it was the artwork that shifted my perception so that because I've heard you even talk about um paintings as doorways and this idea mm -hmm. of a doorway rather than a window is actually a huge mm -hmm. difference. And I feel like this, this active, um, you know, action of kind of like walking from one room into another, a bit like what you're talking about psychologically in, in, in your film works and in, in, in those kind of um, mm -hmm. constructions that you're making. But like, can yeah, you speak sounds... a bit about this idea of the doorway? Because that for me is so important in art. I, you know, it, it, the idea of a doorway came pretty quick uh, early in my work. I think in the in in the late sixties, I was making these paintings that, and I, I in a lot of you know I would paint them flat on the ground. Um, I, I I never painted a painting on an easel or against a wall until probably three four years ago. Oh, wow. And, uh, it, and it was surprising to me that I painted a series of paintings leaned against the wall. It was, I, it was almost halfway through painting the paintings. I thought, God, this has never happened. And, um, but for, so, for such a long period of time, it was always about the, pa the painting or the drawing being flat on the ground. And I, these paintings I was making in the 60s were all done on masonite, uh, kind of uh, composite uh, wood panel. And um, uh, they were always four feet by eight feet. That's how the, the material is sold. And I would paint these paintings, and uh, it 
they were, in the beginning, they had an imagery, and the imagery was interesting. Looking back on it, the imagery was interesting. I, it was like a, a precursor to a lot of what became my work in, in, a, in, a, in other manifestations. But, like, they were always, like, because the panels are long, they were like stacks of, of objects, like um, it was like a tree, and the tree would come up, and the top of the tree would be a, a kind of arms and a head, like a kind of metaphor of a body. And then it got to the point where the tree was replaced by a kind of car structure, like a motor, tires at the bottom, and at the top would be a head. And the head always had a mask. And they started out that way. By the end of like three years of making these things, and I would, I would do them by being on top of them and drawing, and, but they became very physical. Like I would actually get on top of them. I would pound them with a hammer or a board or to, to kind of cut into their, knock into the surface, like knock a yeah. hole through them. Right, right. And then uh, at one point, I would pour gasoline on them and light them on fire and burn them. And this process got to the point where the the latter, the last ones I made were all black. They just were burnt black. There was no image anymore. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me, the images, because the images were always stacked objects and also the head had a mask, a kind of covering. And so much of the sculptures that I've made in the past 30 years are about stacking. And so many of the characters I've played had a mask. In the past few years, they always have artificial noses. That's part of a kind of cover-up. And... So the subject of a mask and stacking starts way back in the 60s. And the other thing is when the paintings went all black, I referred to them as doors. And the work has been compared at the time that of my in, being influenced by the Gutai or the Japanese performance artists of the 50s and 60s. And I... I don't deny that, you know, the Gutai was uh, interesting to me, as was Alan Capra or Cage or any of that stuff at that yes, period of yes, time. Yeah. Well, let, can, we, let's, can we talk about them now while we bring them up? Because a, a lot of people listening probably won't know about uh, the performance art. So where did you see this performance, this Japanese performance art? And it's from the well, 50s, did it, you it, say? It, you, you know, I was living in Utah, which is, is not the... You know, there's not much art at that period of time in Utah. Yeah. There were some interesting artists actually there, but um, I, I, at the time, I, I got a book, uh, an Alan Capra book called "Assemblages, Environments, and Happenings," a really a very important book mm-hmm. in the sense yeah. of of the change in art and uh, of that period of time. Uh, you know, moving towards art as life and life as art. Um, so I knew about them through that book. 
And I also was aware of Yoko Ono and uh, Kusama and stuff like that. And, and I was yeah. interested in Japanese art. I knew nothing about the Viennese uh, at the time. I didn't know that. I knew I knew mm. about Metzger and stuff like that. But it in how I knew it, you know, living in that city is just like I, I think I, I was just one of those kinds of people who's always trying to find it, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. You try and find your <laughs> seeking tribe. out new knowledge. <laughs> yeah, you're just it's just who you are. And I, I think you know, as I was saying, I, I didn't when I burnt the paintings. I didn't know of Yves Klein. I burnt the paintings to turn them black. <laughs> it was the easiest <laughs> yeah. way to get them black, right? And uh, right. and I liked the way it burnt the surface. So I, it wasn't about, oh, Yves Klein, N- nothing to do with Yves Klein. Right. And in a way, you know, I, at the time and even in the past, I've distinguished what I was doing because what I was doing in a lot of ways, I didn't equate to Gutai, like getting on top and beating them with a board. I, I didn't wasn't thinking of Gutai. I was trying to change the surface of them. But it was a performance. And when I did the performance, I would often talk as I was painting the paintings. I would talk constantly. And I, that's a method that I, you know, it's still about that today. Like these drawings I just made with Lilith, those drawings were in character. We, we talk constantly. And it's a way of really distracting logic. It's, it diverts it. You can't do the two things at the same time. So the concentration is, is flipped. Right and uh, the logic is flipped, and mm-hmm. so this thing of when I made those paintings, I referred to them as doorways, and for me it was a way of distinguishing them separate. I didn't really at that point understand Rothko. I wasn't really interested in Rothko. I was interested in Ed mm. Reinhardt, but not Rothko. Right. And, I love that. I love Ed Reinhardt, my God. And then, and then this thing of Rothko and what is it that you're looking at when you look at a Rothko? What are you expected to do, right? How mm. are you expected to look? Is it a form of a doorway? Is it a form to decline? You know, this thing of, you know, uh, blue. And I had made a piece in 68. I found these sunglasses, which were... They were to simulate night vision and uh, in daylight, and they were used for pilots in World War II. And I bought like, oh, I don't know, 20 boxes of these things. And they, what they did is, and they wrapped around your head. And, and it was the same blue as Klein, as Yves Klein. And it was interesting to me because if you wore the sunglasses, it turns everything blue. Oh, wow. So there was this joke of, well, wear these sunglasses and everything's blue. It's Yves Klein blue, right? And in a way, taking like Yves Klein, are you supposed to, you know, this kind of notion that maybe you look at the blue and it's a doorway into this, into uh whatever, I don't know. But this idea of turning the world blue, 
which was a kind of Cajun thing, you know. So these kinds of pieces in that period of time of being aware of these artists and at the same time and making work about what they were doing and extrapolating it into another, into something else, like constantly like reforming thought. So we were talking about uh, influences for you, but then you mentioned Alan Capro who and uh, Viennese actionism, which are huge factors in uh, your development as an artist and influences too. But Alan Capro created these things called happenings, which were these performance arts. Uh, you know, the, he's probably like the, the forefather of performance art, right? And he's someone that has obviously played into a practice. And then the Viennese actionism was performance art, but really violent and um, kind of uh, indecent in public. I think there was one where someone masturbated and covered themselves in shit and then sung the national anthem. I think that's something I remember about it. And that felt like, and it feels like these influences really play into your practice. They've been incredibly important to you. Well, I mean, the, the, I wasn't aware of Viennese actionism until probably... 72, 73, something like that, maybe even a little later. So um, I didn't have any access to it, you know, living in Utah or even in Los Angeles. It, I didn't know about it. Um, Capro I knew really quite early. And, I, and the reason, part was this book, uh, Assemblage Environment Happenings, and then there was a magazine called Art and Artists, which was a quite a good magazine. And there was an issue called Decollage. And it, I think it was edited by Wolf Bostel and a, a German who was uh, a German artist who was doing uh, happenings. And it's pre it's before the word performance. The word performance yeah. art doesn't really happen until in the 70s sometime, I guess, or early 70s. Prior to that, things were referred to as actions or events or happenings. And it's quite Bauhaus, isn't it? They sort of developed that. Uh, Oscar Schlemmer in Bauhaus kind of come up with the, the happenings. And I think Alan said that it's, they're events that, put simply, happen. That was how they were described. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, at the time... When this magazine, I had the copy of this magazine, and in that magazine was uh, Wolf Vostel, Yoko Ono, uh, uh, Ralph Ortiz, uh, Metzger, Gustav Metzger. So I knew of these artists from that magazine, right? And I knew of the Gutai through the book. Right. And, you know, the, the idea of destruction in art... And, uh, you know, coming out of Metzger, Gustav Metzger and, and Ralph Ortiz. So I knew of all that. And uh, I was interested. And, and at the same time, a real interest in experimental films and uh, minimalism. I mean, it's uh, the period of minimalism. So, um, but actionism and Viennese actionism and even fluxus art or the situationists, any of that comes later. Mm. 
it uh, just no access. So, so at one point, did you tackle minimalism then, Paul? Did you? Because it feels like you, as an artist, and minimalism seem polar opposite. Because you, it feels like you love the mess of uh, of the studio. You love the mess, the debris. So, did you? Would you try and at one point to, you know, become minimal? Well, I mean, I, you know, a lot of my early work is minimalism but it's a particular you know at the time i mean a lot of my friends were involved in minimalism and very influenced by judd and uh stuff like that mm. solo with mm. and but um i had made um a piece uh, which was the shape of a, of a capital letter h mm. And it was made in it was made in different versions. One was made in uh, galvanized metal, and it looks just like a big H on the floor. And it was also made in cardboard and made in wood. It was made different ways. And it looks like a big H in a sense, a kind of minimal structure. And but I referred to it as uh, H is for human, and uh, the word the large letter H is reminiscent of, uh, of a human being, like two legs, two arms. And in the center area, be, you know, you have these two straight uh, forms with the center area connecting them. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's almost, and they, and they had the, the large, the, the two straight forms, they're not capped at the end. So essentially you could look through them like a hallway. If you got down on the ground, you could look through the, these things. Right, right. And, but you couldn't access or look into the center area. There was no way of seeing that. Yeah. So there was this thing of a, a kind of minimalism, but uh, a minimalism with, the, and it was called the dead H, H is for human. And so it's, Minimalism, but minimalism connected to the body. And uh, at the time, I was really interested in how people were describing minimalism and its essence. And what I was struck by is Tony Smith's die, the cube, the yes. black cube. Its essence is that it's hollow. It's a skin that captures a void with no access to it. Once the structure is made, you can never enter the center yeah. of it. So the pieces that I made were minute that were minimal. I re I made a black cube, but it had a a, a, a kind of tail that you could look through that came out of it. You couldn't really enter the void or enter the center of the cube, but it indicated that there was a pathway to it, an access to it, but you couldn't get in because you couldn't see in it because it was, it had a, a 90 degree bend, but it indicated. So there was this thing of thinking of minimalism in relationship to the body and minimalism being related to a void and, you know, thinking that the interior 
And then at one point, I make a piece, it's called Ketchup Sandwich, and it's sheets of glass stacked with ketchup in between. And it's a kind of minimal form, right? So there are these pieces related to minimalism. There was a relationship to minimalism and it, and thoughts around minimalism. And uh, the, maybe making pieces that were extrapolations out from minimalism. And But, you know, it very much connected, I would think, to what we think of as post-minimalism. I mean, um, the so... Uh, you know, yeah, it was part of, and it's part of the thing of the '60s. It's that I wasn't, I wasn't looking for a thing. You know, I was making these pieces. I was interested in film, and I was doing performances, mm. and I was making these black paintings. It, it all seemed okay to do all of that. Yeah, and at the same time, this idea of was very prominent in the art world was the idea of collective and uh, making pieces with other people and collaborations. Uh, And I think I look at what I'm doing now and it's kind of, I'm kind of all over the place in the sense of film and drawing and performance and collaboration. It's like a production company you've got. It's sort of the same thing still going on. It's like... uh, it started that way and it's still that way. <laughs> it's interesting thinking, going back quickly to Viennese actionists, because I, I heard a really great quote you said once about how, how Vienna is not Los Angeles and that, and that like, there's a big difference between what you were talking about then, ketchup, and blood, which is what they were using. So can you talk a bit about, about that difference? Like, because because I, I actually think your work is very y- unique in a way and separate from what they were doing, even though it might have been happening in a similar time um look i I think there's some real connections to uh, to actionism and uh, you know uh, mule and gunter bruce and all this and um you know did they affect my work i it's so hard to know at one point you're you know once you're aware of things how does it filter in yeah. And but I, I think one thing with what I've said about all that is one is that I didn't grow I didn't grow up in the war. I didn't come out of the war. Like I wasn't it, it wasn't connected to World War II. It wasn't no. part of a, you know, I grew up in a in the suburbs of Salt Lake City. I mean, it's a whole other and I didn't grow up with Catholicism, I and mean, I barely grew up with Mormonism. I mean, it was really about TV and the suburbs and Disneyland. I'm aware of Disneyland by the early 60s and, you know, the Mickey Mouse Club and all of this kind of stuff. It's like America and all of that. And... Uh, you know, my father was a butcher, uh, you know, put ketchup on everything. It, you know, there's these connections that just, you know, before I know of Viennese actionism, the, the work is moving that direction. Before I know of Viennese actionism, personas are occurring in my work. I'm, You know, that happens in 1970 and 71, 72 and 
and the abject material, you know, in a lot of ways, those black paintings, you know, this use of motor oil and grease and 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 goo, like this, the subject of goo, you know, and uh, kind of, uh, you know, it it's forming. And then you hit Viennese actionism, and what it was for me is, well, yeah, there's somebody else out there, you know. Yeah. And uh, but I'm in California, you know. Not uh, Vienna. Yeah. I'm not, and in a way, an alien in California. Yeah. You know, I mean, my work wasn't really what was kind of. I mean, it had connections, of course, in California. There were artists that I was interested in, but. And they were all part of the performance art scene for the most part. What is it like using all these perishable items in your art? Is there a, is there a feeling that you do you ever worry about the longevity of the, your pieces when they when they do have like grease in them and goo and ketchup and do you, was there ever a worry about that or is that just part of you know conceptually what they are? Do you know it's a. The subject of those kinds of materials in art and longevity, and it's so much connected also to uh, the the commodity aspect of art, like yeah. the collecting aspect. Yeah. You know, collectors are concerned, and you know, it's it's kind of crazy because then that means that if art has to be, you know, has to have this longevity and this. Preservation. It just knocked out of out of the language of what we talk about. It just knocked out a whole section of what the world is, the world of things decaying and rotting and dying and all of this. So it's just kind of like saying art is only the materials of art are only the materials. In fact, one time in a it's just I had sold a work of art. So one of the first works of art I'd ever sold. And it was a clay head. It was my head in plaster, and over the top of that, I had put clay and sculpted another head. So there was about a two-inch layer of clay surrounding a plaster head of me, at my life cast. And that clay was made up this sort of cartoonish, kind of Pinocchio character. And out of... I drilled a hole into the plaster head and there was a broom handle that was stuck down where the nose is. So when you saw the object, it was like this clay caricature with a broom handle coming out where the nose was. And the broom handle stuck up about four or five feet. And the piece, there was a, a curator who really wanted this piece, and I'd never really sold much in, 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 to a museum. It might, might be the first piece I ever sold to a museum. But I remember when I went to the museum, they wanted me to come and talk about the piece. And there was a conservator there, and she said to me at one point, is this clay? I said, yes, it's clay. She said, what is water-based, oil-based? She knew what it was. I said, it's oil-based clay, but it's a very hard consistency. It's very hard. And she said to me, so you call yourself an artist? And it was like, 
the question was, why did I make a piece in clay? Like, that's crazy. Like, was, it, know, was this a time but, when people weren't making work in clay? Or was this just... No, it's, it's just, you know, what? It was in the late 80s, early 90s. I yeah. mean, of course people have been making peace out of perishable items. It's just in that museum, the question was, you call yourself an artist, meaning an artist would never make a piece from a perishable material. And of course it's like, and I said, well, then don't buy it. Well done. And I walked out of the museum, right? Oh, no, and no. Oh, my God. Did they still know, buy it, though? They did buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and I had said later in a conversation, I said, what's interesting is the clay will last. It could probably go 50, 100 years. Of course. It could crack. It could, you could repair it. That's one. Number two, it's interesting if parts of that clay fall off because I'm inside of it. Right? Yeah, so conceptually, it was interesting yeah. to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, like if it starts to break away, what's left is a plaster head of Paul <laughs> with the broom stuck in his, where his nose is, yeah, right? Yeah. So yes. it, it, it's kind of like, but this idea of perishable and you know, materials like that, it, there have been different times in art and collectors who are willing to, to, to think about pieces like that and buy pieces like that. Yeah. And now it seems like it's a bigger subject. And uh, the way the art world is today, I think, and certainly in terms of investment, like they're thinking investment, they're thinking how much is it worth, they're thinking how long will it, you know, like they equate all this. So yeah. this thing of, like I have drawings now that have peanut butter on them. Love those. Right? And um, we'll see what happens. But for the most part, it's, and there you end up with either other issues. You know, rodents want to eat peanut butter. Mice and rats love, love peanut yeah. butter. Yeah. And uh, the other part to that is bugs, right? Yeah. And um, so... But you, it feels you, like you, you, you embrace these things as the artist. You love that. But you were just talking about, like, the value of things. Is that something It just that... occurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It occurs. Yeah. Okay. Like, if I'm making a piece, it like, I don't... I try not to block it. Yeah. Like, that's the thing, you know? Like, I, I don't... Like, I make a lot of clay pieces still to this day, and yeah. they're just clay. And, uh, you know, that's it, right? Like, uh, take, take it or leave it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Of course. But you were talking about <laughs> values and stuff then and how people see it. Is that something that you, because you're a very successful and very collected artist and institutionally collected and privately collected, do you think ever about like that side of the art world? Is that something you do consider? Because you're talking about these perishable things that you seem to embrace. Is there a side of you that now thinks about like the commercial aspect of your practice? Well, you know, for... You know, it's it, in some ways. Uh, I'm probably, uh, you know, uh, within the art world, a, a kind of privileged phenomena. <laughs> like, how's that even possible? And um, but, and I, and I was I was really using the in a way using the art world, and. Engaged in it, like I, you know, for me, I'm an I'm an alternative artist up until the '90s. Like I'm not part of galleries, very little, little bit in the '80s, but essentially it's from '60 to '90, uh, no associations or very little associations to galleries or museums or wow. anything. And it's pretty much through alternative spaces. I don't really sell a work of art till '91 or something. Wow, and. So that, like, like I kind of know both sides of that world and uh, this world of whatever this art world is. And uh, going into the art world, I'm part of, I, I kind of, you know, an interest in California artists happens in the early 90s. And, and it's a, a lot to do with Europe. But it's not to do with New York that much. I mean, Mike Kelly had, some maybe you know a few other artists too, but for the Baldessari and all that. But it, it, it for the most part it's about Europe, and um, I you know it's a, it's and then the whole um, the galleries like Hauser and Worth at that point, and galleries I was involved in were very uh, supportive of. Uh, installations and work that was perishable. I mean, Diderot was a part of that whole situation. Oh, and, yes. And they, as a real important uh, character within that kind of thing. Yeah. I, and I, I think I, intri- you know, the money was allowing me to go further and further with the films, right. what I was doing. Right. Because there was no other way to finance it. Yeah, you know, like yeah. these films... I can't, how am I going to finance them? Like, like you know, who's going to put up the money for them? And and I, so everything I got, I put back into the the, the productions of these uh, performances and these films. The the galleries, in you know, there's different aspects to the galleries of either supporting this kind of work. In a, in, a, in a very much uh, supportive way, just saying, go ahead, we're interested, knowing they can't sell anything, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
and uh, and at the same time, you know, um, uh, that situation I think has changed in the in this uh, in the past uh, ten fifteen years. Right. Like I, I think the art world's changed a lot. It you know brought about by the art fairs, the auction houses. For the better, do you think? Well, there's aspects that are better, right? I mean, for sure, the changes that could be happening in relationship to artists of color. I mean, I had looked at the art world as a racist situation for mm-hmm. a long time. Like, right. like what was going on here? If not, and a, a situation where there was just so few women artists in certain positions, right? Or you know, how did that work? And in the alternative art world of performance and that, it the, the there was as many, especially in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, the feminist movement was huge. And it, as a performance artist, uh, you know, two-thirds or half of my friends were women as performance artists. So, but... In relationship to artists of color, that's a whole other issue. So there's this thing that has happened, which is really necessary, and uh, the change in that, the change to the art world opening up and taking on the discussion, you know, and uh, uh, that's, uh, I think, really positive. I think the aspect of how how collecting and the collector influences the art world mm-hmm. is to a detriment. You think? Wow. They should listen. They should listen and not open their mouth so much. <laughs> because I think that it really is a question of, of uh, they're determining what art is with their money in a big way, you know? And, um, that is a, a major change, investment, art and, and commodity investment. Mm-hmm. And money's seductive. It's just seductive. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, you know, dealers, collectors, uh, institutions, all struggling for this uh, world of money, you know. Um, so I think, yes, the art world has changed both in a good way and maybe a detriment. Like, what happened to art and life? You know, yeah, yeah. What happened to the concepts of Alan Capral? You know, like they became passe, and you say, "Well, you know, it's important. It's in art history." And you think, "Well, maybe fuck, maybe history didn't matter anymore." Because mm. they weren't commercially able. You couldn't sell his performances. They were happenings. They were like unrecorded events, and if you were there, you saw them, but they were word of mouth. Yeah, but it just in a sense of yeah, you could. That's the commodity world. Let's just yeah. say, in a sense of influence on younger artists. If the art, if younger artists only see art in relationship to galleries, that's a a, a detriment. Like you just you just cataloged them. You just categorized it in a very narrow section of the pie. Like art just becomes a sliver in the pie of what art could be. 
And I think that's, uh, that's one of the problems, right? That's one of the things that's happened. And, and it, it's brought about not just, I mean, it's across the board. You know, like I, I now look, I used to think in this period of the early 90s and stuff like that, that the art world had and somehow kind of embraced a, a, a pretty big section of the pie. And there was a kind of correlation between the artists, especially in my world. My world, you know, the art world as gallery, as museum, and as artist, it kind of coexisted, and I was free within that system. I was free to move in there however I wanted. It was a state of a real privilege, super privilege. And... Um, and I didn't take it lightly, this privilege. But now I, I look at it and I think there's, you know, I almost think, well, there's art and there's the art world. They don't connect all the time now. You know, like it's, they're not mutually connected. Mm. There's you, a separation. Do you enjoy pushing the limits of what an artist can take and what an audience can take? I, I mean, I'm referring to one work from 1976 called The Class Four which was this, uh, you had the audience were there and you threw yourself around the room and you caused yourself injury and then you threw up several times and then there was a Barbie doll that was inserted into your butt and at some point the audience felt like they couldn't stand it anymore but that felt like something that you as an artist were were really pushing and and still pushing. Is that still something that you uh, really embrace in your work? Did you know that even that piece? I, I I was sort of shocked when everybody left the room. Um, you know, I don't think it, it, in a lot of these cases, it's not about trying to shock an audience. Mm. Uh, you know, and it's it's like. In one way, it's like dealing with what I think is necessary or what I think is what I should do. But it's not, I don't know whether I think about shocking an audience. I don't think, it's it's a hard one for me to go, hey, yeah. Paul. Because it does shock an audience. Your work is shocking. Yeah. Do you understand that? I yeah. kind of go, Yeah. But at the same time, in making it, I'm not thinking that way. Like the piece that I'm making now, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I, I don't know. It's just I don't think that way. I don't, I don't think I think that way. That's just your language. <laughs> it feels like you're just embracing your language. Yeah, and it's kind of where things go and, and where where my thought is like I look yeah. and I think okay it's about this like I had no intention making a piece about Adolf Hitler but it just it just you know it's it's really like it just seemed like it was on the surface yeah of consciousness of, yeah, of totally. human consciousness like we're really dealing with you know like a crisis 
it's a crisis probably brought about by, you know, uh, I, a, a human situation and a, a technology. Technology is a huge part of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Not just technology in the sense of social media. Yes, of course, but and how images are spread throughout the world like they are and how we take in those images and how how we become what we see. Like, it really struck me when there was this thing of these this group of men that are going to kidnap, uh, you know, a mayor of the city or a governor, I can't remember, and they referred to themselves as the Wolverines. And I thought, whoa, that's a crazy one. Like, we're becoming that. We we want to be that. Like, those people storming the capital, capital did mm. they, what, what character did they choose to be in this yeah. video game, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, you know, there's something about, you know, like the character of Hitler for me is like a mojo. It's like he's, um, it, and it's reframing him. I'm not interested in Hitler, the German Hitler of World War II. I'm interested in, like, what is, what is this futurist character? And, yeah, he's referred to as an Adolf, but it, the name can switch. He can become a Frank. It doesn't matter, right? And then, of course, the whole thing of also equating it to Adam and Eve is just to point out the polarities of that. You know, this is within that. It's like playing with, like you... Like art can be a, a, a kind of form of of one tr- one set of events leads to another. Like you just you know oh A and E oh crazy Adolf and Eve uh, Adam and Eve oh shit that's crazy. Two days later oh arts and entertainment perfect and you know that kind of and then all of a sudden you've let the cat out of the box. And what do you do with it? And do you proceed with uh, an idea that is uh, a forming idea, right? And it can take on like aspects of you're making a joke, but it's a very dark joke. Yeah, you know. Does the and does the world at scare what you? Point Paul? are you trapped with? Are you trapped with humor? What does the world scare you, or do you ever scare yourself with the way that you see the world? You know, I think it's just, it's a scary place right now. Mm. I mean, we all know that, right? We all know that, I mean, we're, we're facing, the, the humanity's facing some serious shit right now. It seems, it seems, it seems, unless I'm fooled, you know, like, can I be really fooled? You know, like, am I fooled? Is is paranoia setting in? Is uh, how serious is it? Da da da. You know, I mean, the, the pandemic is a serious thing, right? Like, but what is it? Where did it come from? That's crazy. Where did it come from? Mm-hmm. Then, how real is it? Very real. 
How long does it last? All this stuff kind of adds up. What does it mean economically? How fast do we come out of the crisis? And then you have something like climate change or that leading to what? Droughts? You know, I mean, you kind of then racial unrest or, you know, all of this is quite to the surface right now. If we had a, if we had, a, if humanity was sitting in a, if it was a big pot of stew, to some degree, it looks like the surface is getting to a boil. It feels like that. Am I scared? Well, I, I guess, I don't know. I'm, I'm involved making work. That's a good way to deal with it. Yes. And actually, you, you were talking about um, not blocking your creativity. So somehow just allowing your creativity to flow. And is that sort of advice that you would give to younger artists or people that are, are making work now? Because I sometimes think with you, there seems to be a really productive kind of open creativity or something, because you do seem to have all these very free form kind of ideas, which, which are summing up huge social concerns just before we've all consciously caught up. Like, I, I think your stream of consciousness somehow can, can almost be a precursor or predict what's happening before we've kind of put words to it. Um, but what, what I think what I'm trying to say is what, 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 what would you say to like younger artists that struggle to kind of feel like they, they can make work or something? I mean, it's, you know, it's a subjective situation. It's subjective to people like where your limits are. Right. And then how, how far you push something and where, where the brakes are and do I have brakes or do I have limits? The answer is yes. Mm. And what determines that? And I mean, sure, you, you kind of, you're questioning the limits. You, you're asking questions about where you put a limit to what you do. And a lot of that has to do with, your, with my relationship to other people. Like, how far do I take a situation has to do to some degree with other people. Like, where do I cross a line there, right? Of course, you kind of cross a line sometimes, and it's good for everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Like, you just all of a sudden turn around and you go, God, that line was really stupid, you know? You've been living with that block for so long, right? And. Mm -hmm. Well, it feels like you've it's, crossed these lines over and over again. You're always, you're always pushing uh, the boundaries of what it is to experience art, of what it is to see and feel art. And I feel like you are, like what Rob was saying about younger artists, looking to you for you know what advice you give, but also these younger artists do look to you as massive inspiration for breaking down the limits of what art is. Do you Do you enjoy knowing that you are kind of at the stage now where you are influencing so many people with your practice i no i you know that i i mean i don't i don't trust that evaluation 
Like, I don't think that, that it's, no. I, I really see it as like, you know, I'm, I see my, in my daily thing, it, it has to do with being part, in part, very much a part of a, a community of artists or, and I, I sort of see it as, a, I don't see that my work stretches that far. So, no, I don't think of it that way. I don't think of it as that I have, uh, and, I, and I don't believe it either. And, and I'm not, I don't know whether I'm, how critical it is to what I'm doing, whether it's true or not. It's like right now it's like, can I make the next piece? Mm. When can I make the next piece? And, uh, you know, the people I'm making with it, doing it with, yeah. uh, do they want to do it? And here we go, you know, and it's more like that. And what is it about? You know, what is the piece about? And can I even get a handle on it? So it's, it sits there. Like, can I understand what I'm doing? And how do I put it together? And it just sits there. It's just there. It's not, it doesn't go beyond that. And so how would one go about auditioning to be in one of your <laughs> movies? Uh, do you have a regular cast? How do you find your actors and actresses and performers? You know, it's different ways, right? It's happened in different ways. But at one point, I was really interested in the subject of additions in Los Angeles, right? Because additions are so, there are so many actors and actresses or actors in Los Angeles, it is just, and it, and the subject of the audition really kind of interests me. So when I did White Snow, I auditioned people, like, I don't know, 50, 100 people. Mm -hmm. When I did uh, CS, I auditioned even more, uh, a couple hundred people. And in, in that, I would explain the project to them yeah. and say, here's, here's where this, here, this could happen in this, and you have to be willing. If you're not willing, then, you know, it, 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 this is going to happen. So you have to be willing, otherwise you can just leave and sorry. Uh, and then I would perform with each one. Wow. We would we would do one a performance with each one. Well, if there was a hundred of them, you would you would do all of them. Mm, yeah, it would be like three groups. Each group is twenty five to thirty people. Whoa! And that and then and then that from that came from this. You know, I think from DAD. From CS, the, this coach, the stagecoach movie, came out of that came five, six people. And I've worked with them over and over again. And um, 
at times people, you know, I, I think out of that came probably in reality more like 10 people. Mm-hmm. And from the 10 people, three people dropped out at some point, mm-hmm. and the five or six are still involved. Then with Lilith and Bernhard, they're both in German theater, and we had, I had done a theater piece in Germany or showed something in Germany and met them there. And uh, so, you know, in a way, I, I, kind of work with the same people all the time yeah and um that's you know it's i mean i'm still open to other people you know and you know like does it happen again i mean right now oh you know i'm supposed to do a theater piece in germany in august and one in vienna we'll see what happens Will other people come out of that that want to be connected? So, but uh, right now it seems like I'm working with six, seven theater people, and and it it's usually the people involved are people who are aware of of art. Yeah. They're not conventional film actors yeah, and yeah. actresses, yeah. actors. They're they're aware of art. They're aware of making pieces like this. They understand it. They understand it as language. And uh, so, in in a way, they're they're outside of certain conventions of actors yeah in, yeah, yeah yeah you know i mean not every actor, they're, they're more improv based i think your actors need to need to master improv and clowning and yeah there's a uh, whole improvisation yeah improvisation is yeah. yeah. a big part and well i love i love that paul so if ever you want someone from london give me a call <laughs> i think <laughs> russell's okay. angling to get an audition <laughs> <laughs> what what do you do what do you do for fun paul mccarthy what do you do for fun now, what do I do? I mean, now is like... Yeah, what do you work. do for fun? In lockdown. What yeah. does Paul McCarthy do? You know, um, you know, there was... It's shifted a lot since this sort of... Since COVID. Um, I, I mean, prior to COVID, there was a lot of, you know... We have a we have a place up in like the lower Sierras. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere, and it, I mean the lower Sierras is sort of high desert, right? It's it's not like upper Sierras with pine trees and that. There are some kind of pine trees, but it's more desert like. And we have a place there, and and I, I spent a lot of time there, you know, and. Uh, it, there was a part of my life that was really, I mean, I grew up in Utah, so there was a whole thing about being in the mountains and skiing and all this kind of stuff. So that, that was a part mm. of my life at some point, but it's less part now. And, you know, I, I think I don't, like right now, I mean, the only thing that, uh, you know, there's movies. <laughs> 
Yeah, of course, and, uh, I was going to say. And, and uh, getting in the car and driving. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, fun has been really reduced to TV, uh, yes. film, and films. I tried to, you know, watch films. And uh, driving a car, getting in a car and, you know, going somewhere. But um, I... You know, I, I was one of the things I did do a lot. I mean, I, I don't know this whole thing of fun and what you do. But I, you know, the studio, you know, there was a group of people and we were all quite close and still are. But it, I mean, this has changed a lot. But conversation was critical for it. That was one of my big things that I really loved. And yeah. it, long conversations. Uh, conversations going nine, ten hours. Whoa. And and drinking beer. Drink, I was going to say, you must be drinking through this. Yeah. Okay. That's so the interesting, though, because I, I always wondered about you. I've never met you, but I always wondered whether you were able to kind of switch off at all because your work just seems so kind of... All-encompassing. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. And, and sort of so many thoughts and ideas, even if there are mm. kind of you know, regular themes that come come up or like you were talking about and even political things that come into the work. But, but I just feel like, did, are you able yeah, to switch? I, I, you know, like I look now and I, I don't know how it's all about. It, it doesn't, I'm, I'm constantly involved. It's like I'm involved in what I'm doing. That is my, to a degree, my entertainment. Sure, it may be about taking a walk or a hike or driving a car, but it's never, you know, and, and it, uh, you know, prior to COVID, I, a big part of what I was doing was uh, I, I really enjoyed conversation, uh, beer and coffee, you know, like drink and then drink coffee, then drink, then drink yeah. coffee. Mm -mm -mm. <laughs> oh, beer and coffee, yes. <laughs> can I, can I quickly ask you one more thing before we go to our final questions? But, um, one, I went to see Mike Kelly's retrospective at the PS1 um, after he sadly passed away. And one of the things that really struck me in that exhibition was actually a collaborative work that he made with you and um, the, the, the films that you made together. Can you talk a bit about your friendship with, with Mike and your, yeah, your working sure. collaboration? Um, I mean, Mike and I start... We had met each other. I mean, Mike was 10 years younger than me, and, and it was a student at CalArts in 70s, 80s, I guess. I think so. I'm not sure. And, and he was part of a whole group of artists that were up at CalArts, you know, Tony Osler and John Miller and Christopher Williams and Ben Weissman, a bunch of artists. And I had, and the group I knew, the, the artists I knew were 10, were 10 years older than that, right? Had kind of already gone out of school, whether it was Chris Burden or Barbara Smith and all this. So I had, I was interested in Mike. I was interested in his work and he had become quite well known, really pretty quick out of school. And we, ended up in a conversation at some point. I can't remember it, an opening. And we said, well, we should do something together, right? Like Mike was very interested in collaboration. Mike did a, quite a few collaborations. And it was part of 
you know, how we viewed art and how we thought about art and art as collaboration and in, in the whole subject of, of the art world and other artists and influences from other artists. And he was very, he would talk about it and he wrote about it. Uh, different than a lot of artists, uh, other artists who just deny history or deny their connections, right? In this case, Mike was very active about supporting artists and supporting artists was a big part of his deal. And so we talked about it. And then at one point I'd been given a grant to make a video in a television studio. And I was, I would have the studio for three, four days. And I just called Mike and said, Hey, do you want to be uh, in a video? And uh, I mean, we'd only met two or three times and, um, Mike said, sure, what should I do? And I said, well, I just made it up at the time. I said, look, why don't you be the son, I'll be the father. And we'll just make a video, see where it goes. And we made a tape. And then years go by, we talk about doing something again. And then we get asked to do something in Vienna. It was like a big performance, uh, kind of California artist, like... Uh, a group of California artists called LAX. And I wanted to make a piece about Heidi. I'd wanted to do it since the 70s. And uh, I had kind of arranged with the gallery to make a piece, and it would be called Heidi. And Mike and uh, was going to, I guess he was working on a piece around Adolf Luz, the architect. And... Uh, we kind of came up with this idea that we would do something together and um, we would make this video. And so we made this set, which half of it is a kind of, you know, stupid little chalet. And then on half, and the other half is an Adolf Lou's bedroom from, a, from an illustration. And the front of that is an Adolf Lou's facade from uh, Adolf Lou's bar called the American Bar, which was in Vienna. So we make this sort of schizophrenic building, uh, which is made up of a chalet, a kind of dumb little chalet, and an Adolf Lou's. And we shoot this piece in Vienna. And from that came just a series of collaborations that went on for quite some time. Like we were sort of doing one every two, three years. And they usually came out of conversations on the telephone and usually around a kind of joke, like we would say something or out of a coincidence where we were both interested in something. And then an idea would form quite quickly and the interesting thing for me is some of it is around not the collaborations, but the pieces we made separately that were so coincidental. That was a really, I mean, the, the collaborations are connected. The pieces, like I remade my house in white snow, I made the house I grew up in, in white snow. And I made the interiors one structure and the exteriors another structure. And Mike at that point had remade his 
the house he grew up in is the mobile house. And that was an interesting coincidence that we both remade the part that was more crazy was he had made an underground underneath his house, a labyrinth maze underneath that house that you could enter through a trap door. And the piece, the, the white snow has a hole underground. And we both made underground chambers underneath the houses that we grew up in without knowing, ever talking to each other. And at one point, Mike had remade photographs from yearbook pictures. At the exact same time he was doing that, I was remaking Newport cigarette ads. And both of them required the same thing. We would audition people to get people who looked like the yearbook or the, the ad, and then we would make the clothes and then position them. I would position them as the cigarette ad, and he was positioning them as the, the yearbook picture. And neither one of us knew that the other one was doing that. And then there was this crazy thing where one of the last painting shows that Mike did at Gagosian, we had, I had a drawing show at Azar and Worth, and he had a painting show at Gagosian's. The same, the openings were two days apart. The crazy part was I had gone into, I had left the, the studio where I had people and assistants and barricaded myself into a, another room where there wasn't anybody for three months. And Mike had done the same thing with the paintings. So there was this crazy thing of, for me, the coincidences that occurred simultaneously during, you know, the last five, ten years that Michael's alive, right? So, and it, it had happened, and part of what had happened with the collaborations is we had realized coincidences about things we were interested in or things we had, you know, objects we had. There was this crazy one where Mike, when Hermann Nietzsche did a performance in L.A., he had asked people in CalArts, they asked students to be in the, in the performance as a music group. And Mike had brought an organ that he had there. And I knew Nietzsche through Capro. And Nietzsche asked me if I could get him an organ. And I said, well, I have this little toy organ. You can have it. And it's in the piece. The thing about what happened was Mike and I are discussing this, this, the piece, Nietzsche's piece. He says he gave an organ. I go, oh, I gave an organ too. And Mike's organ, he had taped one key down, so it only played one note. My organ that I gave Nietzsche, if you turned it on, it only played one note. 
The crazy part is they're the exact same organ. They're the same toy. It's a toy organ. They're the same. So at one point, Mike and I made a piece in which we put microphones over the organs. Like we put the organ on the ground, his organ, my organ, and we put microphones on stands over each of the organ. Each organ had its own microphone. Each microphone goes to a speaker and you turn on the organs and they play the same thing, right? So we made a piece out of this. It still exists. And it was shown at the secession in Vienna. So these things were, you know, that's like the, the, the impetus for pieces came out of jokes and coincidences in a way, realizations and, and uh, that's how the pieces evolved. You, you, had, you, had, you were kindred spirits. That sounds incredible, the experience. I, I guess so. I mean, I guess that's what it was. Crazy, though. Kind of, I mean, I don't know. Kindred spirits, I don't know. But, you know, certainly. I mean, it, it could be that I could pick somebody else and we would just find out, hey, dude, I don't know you, but we should go on. <laughs> that's that's, like, that's, it's that's just an experiment. Like, you know, that's how coincidences yeah. work. It's just yeah. like, well, if we dig deep we're, enough, we'll yep, figure we're out exactly the same. how yeah, we're yeah, connected. Yeah, yeah. So, right? Paul, we have a question that we ask. We have two questions we ask every guest, the same questions. The first one is, if you could do an art heist, if you could steal any work of art from anywhere in the world and have it for yourself, what would it be? <laughs> if you collect. Do you collect? You must collect. Yeah. Well... I think it it's hard for me to decide which one. Mm. One would be the Raft of the Medusa from the Louvre. I would steal that. The other one would be the Matterhorn from Disneyland. So I would, it's one or the other. It's either the Matterhorn from Disneyland or the Raft of the Medusa. So the Matterhorn is a ride, isn't it? Is that the boat that goes upside down? No, the Matterhorn in Disneyland is a mountain with a ride inside. Like old Magic Mountain sort of thing, is it Matterhorn? Okay, all right. And then, no, no. It's, uh, it's actually the Matterhorn Mountain remade in Disneyland with a ride inside. And you want that? That's an amazing answer. And who painted Raft of the Medusa? <laughs> just one of the great dead. one of the one of the europeans <laughs> that's really crazy yeah. oh god it's theodore jericho oh, jericho the other question we ask every guest is a very simple one but i'm fascinated to hear your answer what is your favorite color that question of course you know for a long time i just saw it as a ridiculous question because why wouldn't i like all colors and isn't that the case and uh, there is something, you know, adding to that, though. Um, and, it, and it's hard to pin one color down, and I like different colors for different reasons. You know, 
I mean, like right now I'm in a really green environment with a very blue sky and, uh, it's hard not to say that's pretty great. Um, I, it could be black. Oh. Wow. Could be. Um, it, it, it can, I mean, red is a color I've used a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, for a very long time, uh, just kind of knew that, but didn't see it as a favorite color. But, uh, like, why would I choose one over the other? But red does appear quite a bit. And, um, and so does black. So I can say in my work, it's red and black. They seem to appear a lot. Wow. And brown, too. So they, and they seem to have connections to different things, right? They're connected to something. So it's a, it's kind of a ridiculous question, right? Like, how do you choose yeah, one over the other? it was Rob. Other? Rob asked it. I didn't ask it. Rob yeah, asked it. Rob asked so, it. Paul. So, Rob, <laughs> hey, so what's Rob's favorite color? I did give you a, did give what's you a Rob's warning Rob's beforehand. Does he ever He's wearing orange. My favorite color is the color I'm wearing, orange. The thing is, though, Paul, we actually yeah, do get quite sure. interesting answers from it. And I think sometimes the most simple, stupid question. Yeah, like, what is, what is art, Paul? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. What is art, Paul? Oh, that's a good one. What is what is art, Paul? My, my favorite <laughs> answer is Andy Warhol's. Andy Warhol. It's it's this interview with Andy Warhol and Barbara Rose, and they're sitting, I don't know, on a bench or something. And she says, "Andy, what is the definition of art?" And it's really fantastic because Andy Warhol, his face changed. And he, he became something other than Andy Warhol. He, he looked like he was really thinking about trying to come up with an answer, right? And you kind of thought, wow, is that Andy Warhol? And then finally he goes, oh, Barbara, you know, it's a boy's name. <laughs> <laughs> Sure and I thought, yeah. wow, that whole period of time, he's trying to come up with an Andy Warhol answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like somehow the performance of Andy Warhol just fell off right there. It was the other Andy Warhol trying to figure out an Andy Warhol answer. <laughs> Wow! Did you ever meet him? Did you know? Did you meet Andy Warhol? No, uh, no, uh, no. Paul, I'm going to give you some. I'm going to give you some quick fire questions, right? Then they're probably small and stupid, but these are ones I want to get out. Have you ever seen the Truman Show? Yes, sure. Do you like it? Do you feel like it's something that you know you can see comparatively in in your in that work? Uh. In some way, I mean, the Truman Show, there's somebody who's, you know, there's the masterminds behind it, right? And in the, in the, if what's going on, I think, with us is the, the mastermind is the machine. But, mm-hmm. So I don't know whether I connect. I don't know whether I connect with it, but, I, you know. Yeah, maybe. Next question know. is: How do you do? You ever get pissed off with being thought of as being Paul McCartney, the Beatle? I I can tell you that my you know 
my hashtag Paul McCarthy is about 60% Paul McCartney. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I really kind of like. <laughs> yeah. Who is your, what's your favorite cartoon character? Mm, well, I have to think about that. That's a kind of a tough question. Um, I, I'm not sure. It, it, you know, in a certain way, it, there's something so pathetic about Mickey Mouse that I might think of him. Okay, good. George Clooney or Angelina Jolie? George Clooney, Angelo Jolie. You mean I make a choice? Yes. Wow, that's a, it's a coincidence. I've made work about both of them. Um, yes. I mean, I, I kind of think it's Angelina Jolie. Good, good response. Are you religious? Do you believe in heaven? Religious? It, well, I, not in any traditional sense. I, I, I mean, I do think... Uh, uh, there's two things that really are puzzling. and One is, how, why is there anything? And the other one is infinity. And both of them are right at our fingertips. Uh, infinity is right there. I mean, it's the sky, right? And why is there anything is, uh, is a, a huge question. So in that sense, there's where whatever is. That's, those two things are real. Infinity and why is there anything is real. So... It's about as close as I get to religion. On that note, ketchup or mustard? <laughs> well, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> it, it, it all depends on what you're eating. <laughs> <laughs> and what about in making art? What about between pieces of glass? Yeah, between sheets yeah, of glass. Well, ketchup, obvious. Right. Ketchup, okay. But it isn't, I mean, mustard is intense. Oh, yeah. Mm. I mean, it's an intense taste. And it's an, it's an intense material in a way. You know, it can be quite intense. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, ketchup is sugar. Next question. Who is your favorite of the seven dwarves? Sleepy. Not good. Why? Well, Dopey too. Dopey's good. I know. I love Dopey. <laughs> but Sleepy's... Uh, I don't know. Doc's good, too. Doc's good. Doc, Doc, yeah. You you look like Doc. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I like that. Um, how do you feel about your son being an artist? Uh... Yeah. I mean, Damon, Damon, you know, for the most part is interested in film and in a lot of ways, filming something and editing something, like editing. And then it's a lot about his perception. I mean, there's a, 
correlation between like how he perceives something. And uh, that's a big part of what happens in the work. Like, uh, it's, uh, so, and then at this point, I don't edit things. I, I, there's some input for sure. Probably there'll be more input with Nightbotter, but in a way, I just, it, at least in a certain part of the past, uh, I just move on. And it has something to do with, it's, I'm more interested in the process of filming and the performance than I am in the final process of editing. But he's very interested in that. So, but in terms of the aesthetic of the work, we're pretty much on the same page all the time. So he's, uh, and same with, you know, Mara, my daughter, or Karen. I mean, it's pretty much a discussion all the time. Wow. About what's going on. Final question. Who is the patriarch right now? Where? In your work <laughs> or in the world? In, which is your work? In my work, who is the patriarch in my work right now? Well, yeah. you know, the patriarchs are all buffoons, right, for the mm -hmm. most part. So yeah. Bush, Trump. how do they exist as patriarchs, right? Like right now it's, and a lot of the patriarchs are uh, amalgamations of, of different types of characters. So I could say, well, the patriarch right now is some version of Adolf Hitler. But it's a, really, that's, he's not the Adolf Hitler you think of in 1940s in Germany. It's, it's some other form of that or some other type of character. He's an amalgamation of something. Like he's, at this point, he's a kind of an American. But you know, and he's a kind of cartoon character, I guess. He's a drunk. Um, so they're usually these patriarchs are amalgamations of things. You know? And uh, so the one being worked on right now is, uh, you know, he's also Adam, too. Okay, great. Well, on that note, one more question then. Pigs or dogs? Dogs. Good answer. I like that. This has been an absolute pleasure, Paul McCarthy. Oh, it's been incredible. Thank you so, so much. You are one of our heroes and an art world, like art history hero. And what mm -hmm. a, we are just privileged to have spent this last couple of hours with you uh, in and out of Wi-Fi. Thank Wi you so much. Yeah, she's yeah, been amazing. Sure. And honestly, one it was really strange, but I always had this dream for some weird reason because I never met Mike either. Um, and I always had this dream of meeting you and talking to you about him. So I now feel like I've actually achieved a life oh, kind of yeah. ambition, weirdly, because I have so much respect for you, so much respect for Mike. And I love what you two created mm. together in particular as well. Yeah. And um, thank you for letting me chat about that because that was really special. And for everyone listening, um, 
Paul's new show is opening at Hauser & Worth on the 18th of February until the 10th of April 2021, right now. Um, and it's called A&E Sessions, which we discussed in this episode, Drawing and Painting. Um, and Paul, what, what else is next for you? Uh, well, there are things scheduled. Whether they happen or not, I don't know. You know, theatre pieces in Germany and Vienna and uh, a show in, in I'm going to audition for them. Yeah. And a show in Oslo too, and uh, and then shooting a film. But um, they, it's it's hard to know when. Some of that will happen for sure. Bergen will happen. The show in Oslo will happen. Theater pieces, I don't know. That's a question. You know, like when does that really? Will that? Is that something that will happen in August, September? I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? We'll yeah. leave that to. What, who, the powers that be um well thank you so much and for everyone listening you can visit our instagram at talk art and you'll see images of all the artworks we've discussed in today's episode um, yeah did you enjoy it was it okay yeah it was okay except for the last questions they were they were difficult Hugger <laughs> <laughs> pig i don't know <laughs> mustard or ketchup i don't know what's your favorite color i, I don't know <laughs> Are you religious? Oh, God. God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, well, Paul. Thank Big so love. Much. Have a great rest Lots of the day of in LA. And hopefully we get to meet you very Take soon. Take care. Bye. Lots of love. Bye, bye, bye. 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 You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 